Hello and welcome back to the Land and Climate Podcast. My name is Bertie Harrison Bruninsky, and today I'm talking to Lighthouse Reports journalist Thin Lei Wing about a recent investigation into Europe's largest agricultural lobby group, Copa Cogeca, and the disproportionate sway they hold over EU policymaking, blocking environmental reforms and funneling subsidies to industrial farmers instead of smallholders. He received an email from a Coca Cogeca staffer telling him to back down from that position and essentially saying that if he doesn't withdraw this proposal for alternatives, there could be unpleasantness. They've been one of the biggest spoilers when it comes to making European agriculture more climate resilient. I began by asking Finn why Lighthouse chose to make one of their seven newsrooms focused on food systems and how that team ended up investigating Copa Cogeca. We need to look at food from a holistic perspective, and that's what we're trying to do at Lighthouse Reports. In particular, we really want to look at these structural inequalities, which has brought us to where we are today. Because if you speak to a lot of food systems experts, they'll tell you that the current systems that we have, from the way we are producing to the way we process, transport, consume and discard food, is broken, completely not working. We have increased the amount of food that we've produced dramatically over the past half a century. And yet we still have hundreds of millions of people going hungry and so many billions of people who are malnourished. Obviously, it's not an issue about whether we are producing enough food. There are lots of other factors that are making the system at the moment completely unsustainable because food systems, we've also discovered recently, that accounts for a third of global man-made greenhouse gas emissions. In trying to look into that, we've also been looking at things like consolidation and monopoly of the power of companies, food companies uh, have on farmers, what could be contributing to food price inflation. And we've been wanting to speak to farmers about what they're facing, what are some of the challenges, what are their needs. And we started uh, talking to them actually last year. And one of the things that we kept coming across was that there are a lot of farmers who do want to change the way they produce food, make it more sustainable, environmentally friendly, biodiversity friendly, but feel like they're locked into these systems that are way bigger than them, that they just feel powerless to change. And in discussions, we keep coming across talk about these big, powerful farm unions, and of which Copacabacheca is the biggest, the oldest, and the most powerful of them all in Europe. So you have all these national farm unions in individual countries, right? Many of them. And Copa is union of unions at the EU level. And they were set up around the same time as the Common Agricultural Policy, the CAP, which is the system of subsidies for farmers in the European Union. This was late 1950s, early 1960s, and it was started out as a farming and a cooperative movement, the COPA and the Kojeka arms. And then they merged in the early 1960s and they created this single lobbying powerhouse. And they have held sway over agricultural policymaking in the European Union ever since. So we thought it was natural to find out who they really are, whether their claim to power is really legitimate, because they present themselves as the united voice of farmers. Is it fair to say the main findings have been that 
they probably overstate their membership or at least the number of people that they represent and that their views and objectives are often not really aligned with most farmers. Okay, let's look into the findings one by one. Number one is that Kukukucheka said that they represent more than 22 million farmers and their families in the European Union, which would essentially mean every single farmer in the European Union, because according to the statistics, that's the number of farmers we have. But our investigation found that that is definitely not the case. A lot of the numbers are based on membership figures that are opaque, unavailable, or unreliable. It is nowhere near 22 million. So the power from which they derive their legitimacy is based on statistics that it's really hard to actually prove. Number two, one of the things that we found also is that they represent only a subset of farmers, not all farmers. They represent the big, the large-scale industrial intensive farming unions and cooperatives and farmers. Number three, despite all of that, they still have privileged access to the EU institutions. And by that, I mean the European Commission, the European Parliament, and the European Council, which is the governments and the ministers. They are the only group that gets to speak to the council presidency before every meeting of agriculture ministers. No other groups get access. They have very close relationships with a lot of the members of parliament, members of the European Parliament, MEP. And we have seen emails and letters that they've sent uh, to MEPs giving specific instructions on how to vote. You know, some of the documents go on over 100 pages with specific, you know, ways, amendments and votes. They have very close relationships with particularly with DG Agri, which is the Directorate General on Agriculture in the European Commission. There is these groups that DG Agri has set up to get stakeholder participation. And Kobrigajeka for a very long time uh, has had the largest number of seats. And finally, the fourth is that they are losing touch with a lot of the farmers, whether these are farmers inside Kobukajeka, we spoke to many insiders, member unions who feel unrepresented, particularly unions who have um, small, medium-sized farmers, family farmers, they feel like they don't get a say. There's also a lot of small farmers, independent farmers, and young farmers who are outside of the union who feel completely unrepresented. Why is this so opaque? I found it interesting in the interview that Politico did with the Secretary General of COPA uh, following your investigation, where he seemed to basically claim that he even he didn't know the numbers Yeah, that's really interesting. And you would have thought policymakers in Brussels would also do their own due diligence before just accepting that, oh, yeah, they say they represent 22 million farmers and therefore they do. Yeah, so Political Europe is one of our media partners for this investigation. And they did this fantastic interview with Paka Pasonen, who is the Secretary General of Copacajeca, who he himself admitted that the 22 million numbers is more probably more aspirational than realistic. It's really interesting, and we're still in some ways uncovering ourselves, why it is so hard to know the exact number of members. So let let me just give you a couple of examples of what our media partners in the countries that we were looking to found. 
And it requires a lot of digging and our own mathematics. So in Romania, our Romanian media partners, uh, two reporters called Matei and Andre, were fantastic. They looked at the COPA union members, which is an alliance of four unions, and discovered that they represent, in their own words, 3,500 farmers in a country with almost 2.9 million agricultural holdings. In Denmark, we've also looked at the membership numbers and the biggest union there, LNF, which is the only member of Copacajeca, they have sort of flip-flopped their membership numbers. We looked at their 2021 annual report, which gave numbers that showed that they have increased the number of farmers as members by 5,000, which is interesting because both at European level and at Danish national level, statistics shows that the number of farmers have gone down. So we're like, oh, how come that you are seeing actually an increase in membership? They wouldn't explain how they came up with those numbers. But in their 2022 annual report, they took away that number. So in Poland, the biggest union member is also supposed to have like more than a million members. But even their court judgment found that a lot of these agriculture chambers of commerce have absolutely no idea how many members do they actually really have. In Spain, it's a bit better. A reporter in Spain discovered that the three COPA members represent 40% of farmers. That's not a majority. Part of it, I think, is just the nature of farming over vast geographical areas makes it harder to get very, very specific numbers every year. So it's something that I think people are only able to do it, you know, every few years uh, doing the census. There is a representativeness survey that is being done by an EU agency called Eurofound. They did something in 2016, and we tried to sort of compare and contrast the numbers that we found with the numbers that they found. But we also spoke to an external researcher commission to do that survey who said that they had to rely on what the unions tell them quite often. So it's a very interesting paradox. You know, we're still trying to find out more about it. Do the members of the unions and Copa Cajeca not pay for that membership? There must be accounts that they hold with those figures, right? You would think so, but it's actually really hard to find those exact details. I mean, we trawl through annual reports and financial reports, and there are sometimes estimates, sometimes there's very little data. We actually reached out to 50 members of Copacajeca, uh, national unions. Only nine responded. Either they haven't done a good job of keeping track of their own memberships, or it helps them in some ways to keep that number slightly opaque. Do you have a sense of or knowledge of where the money is coming from with Copa Cajeca? I mean, who, who are the most important stakeholders for them in terms of funding? That is a very important question. And that is one that we have struggled to answer. Copa Cajeca had to file with the Transparency Register as part of their role up until 2021. And we found that, you know, they spent quite a lot of money, I think one and a half million, I think in the last uh, filing between, between the two of them. But then they changed their status to non-commercial, I think at the beginning of 2022 or at the end of 2021. You'll have to double check on that. And there is a watchdog group called 
CEO of Corporate Europe Observatory, who actually made a complaint with the ombudsman to say, hang on, this is a lobby group. They should have to file how much they spend on lobbying costs and they can't just be non-commercial. We looked at the transparency register and the filings there sort of went down by half over the last filing compared to the previous ones. It's been really difficult to find out. I mean, we do know that some of the membership fees come from governments. So we know that for Romania, Spain and Poland, the governments pay for their national unions to be part of Copacajeca. And our calculation showed that they pay about 1.4 million euros in total a year between those three countries. I've also discovered that Lithuania may still be paying the membership fees and they do come up to about hundreds of thousands of euros a year. And those are the only ones that we know out of the 22 European Union members that pay membership fees. We also know that, for example, Copacajeca, some of their events, they co-organize with agribusinesses. So CropLife Europe, which is the lobby group for the um, agrochemicals, the fertilizers industry, but in particular, have co-organized at least one annual event with Copacajeca. Of course, they say that it's all independent and this is part of how you defray costs and how it works and that, you know, CropLife has no sway on what the COPA's position. We do know that there are those relationships, but the exact number of funding and how much they spend on lobbying, I think only Copacajeca knows. Did you get the impression that, generally speaking, member state or governments within the EU are supportive of COPA's objectives or are there tensions there with any countries? Earlier on, I talked about, you know, sort of like how COPA has really good relationships and has privileged access with the multiple EU key institutions, including the council. So the council is made up of the governments, right? And one of the reasons of that close relationship is because a lot of the national member unions of Copacajeca have very close relationships with the governments. For example, again, in Romania, uh, one of the vice presidents of Copacajeca used to be the secretary of state for agriculture in Romania. FNSEA, which is the French farming union, which is extremely powerful, they have very, very good relationship with the Macron government, but not just Macron, but the successive French governments. That and a lot of the people who are involved in agriculture policymaking are ministers of agriculture. They're only seeing agriculture from a very, very narrow spectrum, and they're not seeing the wider societal impacts around either the environment or the consumers or biodiversity, both the politicians and the policymakers at the national level and the European level and people in Copacajeca speak the same language. The people who disagree with, the people who think this is not the right way to do are sort of locked out out of this, this process. I mean, academics call it the iron triangle where you've got the executive, the interest groups, and the legislative arm, the three arms, are this very chummy, closed-loop network that decides on policies on agriculture in the EU. So unfortunately, a lot of the governments in the EU, in the council, thinks very similarly to Copacajeca, at least when I say the government, the agricultural ministries of these governments do. If you imagine there's a there's a bill go, that's in proposal stage, say, through the commission, and Copacajeca wants to change it in certain ways, 
what are the kind of options they have to do that? What different like avenues of influence do they have over the EU? Yeah, so they have three levels of influence that they can do. One is the commission, and commission is the one that usually starts the drafting of the laws. Even before the law is drafted, they could lobby the commission, particularly the DG Agri, which they've always had very, very close relationships with, like Copacajica office and the DG Agri building are like two minutes walk from each other in Brussels. But there are also other departments like the DG Sante, which is responsible for the farm to forks. And they could lobby all these different directorate generals through their stakeholder groups, but also directly, particularly if you already have a close relationship. So even before the law is being written, they can push it and nudge it in a way that they would prefer for it to go. Once the law is tabled, it reached the parliament and it goes to the parliamentary committees. Uh, you've got the Com Agri and the Com Envy, I guess the two that so far has been the most involved when it comes to agriculture and the farm to fork strategy policies. And in the Com Agri, they have very close relationship with a lot of the members, uh, a lot of the parliamentarians there. And even, you know, I think Greenpeace did a study a few years ago I think 2016, that sort of looked at members of Comagri in the parliament and their interest in agriculture. And a lot of them are, you know, have their own holdings, benefit from the CAP, the Common Agriculture Policy Subsidy, or in some way linked to the agriculture sector. There's already conflict of interest, like Jerome Kandal, who is the Dutch academic from Wageningen, who talked about political capture in the EU because he says in any other sector, people with this kind of direct conflict of interest deciding on policies that will benefit them is an absolute no-go. But in agriculture, that's sort of almost expected. So, you know, they can influence parliamentarians at that level as well once once it reached the parliament. Like I said, they send emails, they push parliaments, you know, tell them how to vote, tell them what amendments should be tabled. In the interview with Politico Europe, again, Paka Personen admitted that they actually table these motions for MEPs. And I want to give you a specific anecdote that um, our Romanian partners discovered with this Romanian MEP who was part of a file. He's a shadow rapporteur on the file on school scheme to provide fruits and vegetables. So it's something that is warm and fluffy, providing milk and fruits and vegetables to school children. Who wouldn't want that? Who would object to anything that is being tabled, right? And the program was being negotiated among different political groups. And this MEP from Renew Group wanted to table providing alternatives for milk, particularly for children who are either allergic or lactose intolerant. And he received an email from a Coca Cola staffer telling him to back down from that position and essentially saying that if he doesn't withdraw this proposal for alternatives, there could be unpleasantness. Why is that so scary that this organisation has such influence? What are their aims and objectives? You've said that they kind of favour big industrial farming over smallholders. Do you know any kind of specific laws and changes that they've made? Or do you know any specifics about their influence over kind of climate directions that agriculture has been potentially taking or not taking? Latest statistics show that the region has lost 3 million farmers in 10 years. 
that's a rate of 800 a day. And they're not being replaced at a rate that they should be. The average age of a European farmer is 57 years old. If we really want a sustainable, resilient agriculture that has longevity, we really need to support the small, medium-sized farmers that are a lot of academics and studies have shown that produce food for the local communities, not just for export. Number two, the fact that Copacabana has so much power means the kind of policies that they've been pushing for are policies that only benefit the big ones, not the small ones means we keep losing small farmers. Farming is becoming more and more consolidated. Farmlands are being consolidated. And if there is focus is purely just on monetary profit without looking at what are the consequences to consumers, to the natural environment, to the ecosystems, then we are going down a really, really dangerous path. Another reason why it's really concerning that Kupapichika is so powerful is because they have so far very much campaigned against a lot of policies and reforms to make European agriculture more sustainable, more climate resilient, more environmentally friendly. So, you know, they've campaigned against efforts to restore degraded natural areas. They have campaigned against laws that would reduce use of deadly pesticides, reduce the use of fertilizers, which, as we know, if overused, can really have a massive impact on ecosystems and soil fertility. They've also been really against linking farm subsidies to environmental outcomes or even capping farm subsidies and directing them more towards smaller farmers. They've been one of the biggest spoilers when it comes to making European agriculture more climate resilient. So one thing with Copacabana is they have been very good at taking advantage of crises to really push for policies that benefit big farms and slow down and delay climate action. When COVID-19 hit, they said there's a global pandemic and we need to actually slow down farm to fork. They really actually push farm to fork strategy to be postponed, but they didn't succeed, but they did try. And then last year, when Russia invaded Ukraine, they used that as an excuse to say, hang on, we need to produce as much food as we possibly can. We need to feed the world. And therefore, you know, we cannot have areas to protect biodiversity. A recent analysis that came out showed that a lot of that land that was not used to protect biodiversity, wasn't used for producing food, it was used for producing feed. It didn't go to hungry people, either in Europe or in third world countries. Again, they've also used the Ukraine crisis to say this is food insecurity. And they have essentially portrayed a lot of the legislation, whether it's to halve pesticide use or whether it's to protect ecosystems, as things that are going to, number one, reduce farmers' incomes, uh, reduce productivity, and will lead to hunger in the European Union. And they have used studies that only look at a very, very narrow set of criteria or findings to push for that. They've said, oh, this is going to be much more expensive for farmers. This is going to be much more expensive for consumers without actually taking into account what it would mean if we don't change things. If we don't have functioning ecosystems, we cannot produce food. 
that is the bottom line. Then we're not even talking about the fact that it's going to be expensive for farmers and consumers. It's just that there would just be no food. What do we do then? Yeah, so they've taken advantage of the, all these crises. They've used studies that only shows part of the only highlighted part of the partial issues instead of the holistic view of what we really need to do. My thanks to Thin for coming on the show. Do check out the full investigation from Lighthouse and their media partners, all linked in the podcast blur below. If you're still hungry for more, I'll also link our new collection at Land and Climate of articles and podcasts that we've called The Future Unrefined. It looks at issues around extraction and raw materials and the climate transition. If you enjoyed this episode, do follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us a review as well. We really appreciate it. We'll see you again in two weeks' time when Alistair is going to dive into the complex topic of deep sea mining. Thanks for listening.